right. Uh, good morning and welcome to Chanel. I don't ever want to critique JJ, but he did miss a birthday. Young Jack Allen here turned 17 on Tuesday, so happy birthday, Jack. Yes, you're not going to stand, I guess? Okay, so I'm just playing. Um, so we're, we're glad that you're here with us. If you're joining us online, welcome. We are glad that you are here as well. Um, I'm going to tell a story this morning that is going to seem ridiculous. Uh, these stories that I'm, I'm going to tell, you can confirm them on your own, uh, but it's about the 1904 Summer Olympics. Uh, these Olympics took place in St. Louis, Missouri. That's right, the Show Me State. Show Me Seven, I'll Show You Eight. Um, thank you. Um, but the, in the Show Me State, it's part of the World's Fair in 1904. And the specific event that I want to talk about for just a little bit this morning is the Olympic Marathon. Here uh, is a picture from the World's Fair, but here's this picture of the starting line. Now, the reason why I love the story of the 1904 Olympic Marathon is because it is considered the worst Olympic Marathon as well as the weirdest. The marathon was 24.85 miles. Now, all runners like me know that that is not the standard uh, mileage of a, a race like this. But they went 24.85 kilometers on this race. So not off to a great start, right? It's said that half of the entrants finished the race. So think about that for just a second. Everyone who started, only half of them even finished it. The race itself was chaotic for so many different reasons. Uh, mainly because the organizers of this particular marathon used this as a means of like social experiments. So for example, there was a, a, a lot of study going on at this time about dehydration. So the organizer of the race said, to test people's abilities, we're only going to put two water stations on the entire marathon route. At mile marker 7 and mile, mile marker 11. Yeah, some of you are like, okay, this is sounding bad. But what's even better is in 1904 in St. Louis, Missouri, all the roads weren't paved. So you're a marathon runner. You're like, hey, I want to win this Olympic medal. They're like, we got a surprise for you because you're going to be running on dirt roads. If you've ever run with a lot of people on dirt roads, I haven't read about it. But dust picks up. So out of the gate, you're, you're leaving the stadium, you're feeling good about yourself, and then the dirt and dust just starts kicking up in your face. But along the lines of these roads being unpaved, the route of the marathon went through parts of the city. So there were times where individuals had to dodge trains, motor cars, coach and wagons. At times, individuals had to run away from random uh, dogs that just happened to be out in the community. This was a chaotic race for so many different reasons. But it's not just the race that made it weird, but the entrance made it weird too. You had 10 individuals from Greece, from the country Greece, sent 10 men to America to run in the marathon that had never run a marathon before in their lives. Just like, all right, this is going to be the first one I give it a go at. South Africa uh, was participating in the World's Fair. They had an exhibit. They had two individuals in this exhibit who they said, hey, while you're there, I know you came just to do the exhibit to tell people about South Africa. How about you just run a marathon while you're there? They did. Those two guys showed up at the starting line 
without shoes. No shoes. They came in ninth and 10th in the marathon, right? This is all verified on the internet. I, I'm, I'm telling you guys, I know this sounds wild. What's crazier is those guys ran an extra mile because they were the two guys who they were chased off the course by dogs. They went out of their way an extra mile, still came back, and came in ninth and 10th, respectively. But the character that I love the most in the 1904 uh, Olympic marathon is Felix Carbaja. He was a Cuban national who raised money by doing athletic feats in Cuba to just be able to get to America to run in this race. So he would climb mountains, he would do different treks just to, to raise money to afford this trip. He raises enough money to get to America for this and goes through the port of New Orleans. When he gets to New Orleans, my man Felix has too much fun. He gambles every dollar that he raised to get to the Olympics away in New Orleans. Best time of his life, possibly. But Felix remembers, oh man, I've got to run a marathon. And so he hitchhikes all the way from New Orleans to St. Louis, shows up the day of the race wearing this. This is what this man raced in the Olympic marathon. Dress shirt, dress pants. I'm going to tell you about the pants in a second. Dress shoes and a great hat. Excellent choice. He shows up wearing pants, and another Olympian says, you can't run in pants. They grab scissors and cut his pants at the knees so that he can run. Now, and you're not going to believe this either. He doesn't take the race terribly serious either because he decides that when he's running through these towns and these communities of the St. Louis Marathon, he needs to practice his English. So at times, Felix would stop running completely and practice his English while he was in the States. He also ran into a couple who had peaches. They were enjoying the race, watching people run. He said, can I have some of your peaches? They said no. He stole them and ran away. He, he gets away and he finds an apple orchard later on, but he starts eating apples that are spoiled. So his stomach gets sick. He has to take a nap mid-Olympic marathon and still finishes the race. This is a crazy story. But the individual that won is Frank Lors. He wins because he cheats. He gets a cramp at mile marker nine, gets his friend to pick him up and take him to the finish line. No one knows that he's done this, so everyone is celebrating because this guy has finally won the race until somebody said, hey, a car dropped him off like a few minutes ago. So he doesn't get to win, but the guy that wins is a guy named Thomas Hicks. This is actually Thomas Hicks crossing the finish line. Now, if you're wondering why he looks this way, it's because he has been given a concoction that on today's standard would be rat poison. At mile marker 10, he wants to quit. He's not feeling good, but his trainers are like, we didn't show up to lose, Thomas. Take this rat poison mixed with brandy and finish the race. They say that this guy who won the Olympic marathon finished the race hallucinating. He had no idea where he was, and then his trainers helped him get across the finish line. I love the story of the 1904 Summer Olympic Marathons because it is wild. There's so many weird and crazy points of it. But the thing that comes to the focus for me is like the pain and the suffering that these dudes endured. 
just to finish a race. They went through it. They struggled. This morning, we talked last week about these verses that we, we take away from their context. And this morning, I want to do a verse that is very popular, especially amongst athletes. And it's Philippians 4.13, the passage that Wyatt read just a little while ago, where Paul writes, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. When I was a kid, I played baseball. Not successful, so I'm doing this. Um, but when I was a kid, when I would play baseball, the first time that I would get a hat, I would turn the bill over, and with a sharpie, I would write Philippians 4.13 in it. Now, as a kid, I was like, we're about to go destroy the pirates, right? Like, that is, God is going to give me the strength to beat these kids that I go to elementary school with. And I didn't understand where this verse comes from or why Paul even writes this verse. And that's what I want to spend a little bit of time this morning doing. Because you see this verse in popular culture a lot. It took one Google search of athlete Philippians 4.13 to show this picture of Tim Tebow, who, as you can see with his eye black, he has Philippians 4.13 on the Sports Illustrated cover. It's a very popular verse, especially among athletes like myself and Tim Tebow. But this morning, what I want to do is lay the foundation for where this verse comes from, why Paul wrote it, and add some more meaning to a verse that is already special to a lot of us. And so to do that, we have to understand where this letter even comes from. Well, Philippians 4 gives us a few context clues as to why Paul wrote this letter in the first place. Paul writes, Now, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I receive full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So we already know the letter exists because Epaphroditus, on behalf of the church of Philippi, has sent Paul gifts. Now, is it Paul's birthday? Is there an anniversary that we don't know about? They're actually sending him gifts because Paul is in prison. Again, doesn't feel like Paul is gearing up to play the Pirates in the Hanson Little League. He's actually going through some stuff. He's in a, a very bad situation. But Paul has this relationship with the church of Philippi that, that can't be understated. Oops, there we go. Because in Acts chapter 16, we learn that after going to Troas in verse 12, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there for several days. So using Philippians 4 and Acts 16, we understand why the letter was written was because the church of Philippi had sent Paul gifts, and they sent him gifts because he had a previous relationship with these people. But we have to understand who these people in Philippi were. And Paul gives us a little, or Luke gives us a little bit of a clue by talking about this Roman colony. Because most of the individuals that lived in Philippi were going to be individuals who were former Roman soldiers or Roman government officials. That is a huge element to understanding the way that Paul writes the book of Philippians. Because he's not just writing a letter to friends, he's writing a letter to people who have experienced his teaching, and he also understands the circumstances that they are in. See, individuals in Philippi wrestled with this idea of who is king. These are old Roman military individuals, old Roman government officials. And in their minds, the king is the Roman emperor. But then Paul comes into town and he says, actually, Jesus is king. 
It's not anybody from this world. It's, it's Jesus who is king. And so he's combating an ideology of really who's in charge. Who is the authority in your life? A lot of these individuals in Philippi believed that the individual that was in charge of their life was the Roman emperor. But Paul is saying, it's not, it's not the Roman emperor, it's Jesus. Like, you may think that your king is from this world, but it's not. Jesus is king. And so those are kind of the foundation parts to why Philippians even exist. Like, why we have a letter to this church of Philippi. And so Paul begins his letter here in chapter 1 with a notion of thanksgiving. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray for, with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, referencing their extended connection. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is pretty traditional Paul language. Of We're being thankful for our relationship. I'm recognizing that we have been together for a long period of time. But then Paul moves into something that I love, and it's something that we see in the writings of Paul. And it's something that Craig alluded to in his communion talk. Because Paul continues, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Do you see what Paul is literally doing? He is in jail. He is in chains. He is shackled down. And instead of like wallowing and being like, oh, poor pitiful me. This is the worst thing that could ever happen. He is essentially uh, preaching to them in a kidnapping situation. He's like, you've got me here shackled. Guess what you guys are going to get to hear all day long, every day, is the gospel of Jesus. He takes this moment where he could complain and just whine and say, I'm suffering. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. And he looks at it and he says, you know what? God can do something in this moment. Years ago, we used to do this thing with the teens where we would ask them highs and lows. And we would start class that way, and, and it was so easy for the teens to tell you what the lowest po points of their week were. Um, a boyfriend broke up with me, or I failed a test, or, or whatnot. You fill in the blank. It was so easy for them to talk about the negatives. But then when you would turn around and say, hey, what were the highs of your week? Like, what were the good things? And it took them a while to start thinking about that. It's so easy to find ourselves in negative situations and stay in those. But we can have a, a framework, a mindset that says, maybe God can use this moment. It changes our whole life perspective, and it does for Paul here too. Instead of just sitting in sadness, Paul says, God is going to use this moment for something good. He says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He's not just preaching, he's converting them. Like the church is moving because Paul is using this terrible situation to glorify God. But the tone changes a little bit in verse 27. When Paul writes, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as the one for the faith of the gospel. Paul's language here, this is often overlooked when we read Philippians. Paul doesn't think that he's going to be able to write another letter. Paul's future is uncertain to Paul. He, he doesn't know what tomorrow looks like. He doesn't know if he's going to be in jail the rest of his life, if they're going to kill him. 
And so he starts writing in this way that is so honest and so real. Because he doesn't know what's next. In Kentucky, I had a kid that went to jail for a little while. I will contend that he was and is still an amazing kid. He made a mistake. But when he was in jail, we would write letters. Because I said, hey, there's no reason to call me. Use that money for your family. We can write letters back and forth. This kid was a kid that was never really serious in any way. He was, he was a goofy kid. He loved to joke around. He was never serious about anything that he was going through. But those letters from jail were the most honest that that kid ever was. He was sincere. He was real. He was transparent. And, and I need you to kind of understand that when Paul begins to write this way because he doesn't know what's next. He can't see the other side. And so when he uses language like whatever happens, it's like I'm giving you everything I've got. These are the most important words and foundations that I can give you because I don't know what's next for me. And so what he starts doing is he, he kind of reminds them of the people they've got around them. Chapter 2, he moves into this language of, let me tell you about Timothy. Let me tell you about Epaphroditus who has just brought me these gifts who you've appointed as a leader in your community. But when we understand that Paul's referencing those individuals, not because he's proud of them, because he's wanting them to know these are people that are going to be examples in your life if I'm not here. These are Paul's last words. He doesn't know how much time he's got left, and so he's reminding them, look at the people that are around you in chapter 2. He says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. And he moves forward in in chapter 3, and I promise you we're we're getting to where we're going. But in chapter 3, it's kind of this resume of Paul's life. He's like, it's easy for me to look at the things that I have done, the, the people that I've influenced, the churches that I've built. It's easy for me to look at my resume and say, oh man, look at me. But Paul says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This, these are words of a man who thinks that death is right, the next option for him. And he's saying, if you look at my life, and you look at all the things that I've done, you have to recognize the only reason I've accomplished those is through Jesus. And he ends in verse 10 and 11 by saying, I just want to be more like Jesus in every way possible. And so Paul will then move to chapter 4, which is where we've been trying to get to this morning. He does a a bit of housekeeping in the beginning of chapter 4, where he's like, hey, these two women, they haven't been getting along. I would really like for them to get along. And and he kind of gives us their names, which is the ultimate, like, blasting them in public. Like, behave, we're going to record your names in this letter. But then Paul immediately moves from these two verses into the section of chapter 4 that we're focusing on this morning. 
Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, remember this as an individual writing from prison, thinking that death is next. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's easy for us to get up, get caught up into the way, like the repetition there. It's, it's moving. But he's writing to this church that he cares about, thinking that these are his last words to them. He's saying, if these are the last words that I have to give to you, focus on Jesus. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at your last renewed concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul thinks he's going to die in prison. And he's accepted that. He said, you know what, if, if God has placed me here to write this letter to you, to share the gospel with my prison guards, then that is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to give all the glory to God, even in these difficult and trying circumstances. Paul writes, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then Paul writes these words, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is powerful when we add the full context to it. When Paul walks us through where the situation that he's in, what he's going through, when we add this layer to this text, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is a man who has the world against him right now. But he sees hope, even through his suffering. Paul is recognizing that God, God alone, is the only thing that can bring him out of this terrible situation. And even if God chooses not to bring him out of this situation, God will be glorified. Paul will be used by God in this jail cell, in these shackles, in this terrible season. God will be glorified. He says, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Paul spent the entire chapter, Philippians chapter 3, talking about how his resume doesn't matter. Everything that he has done is through Christ. And when you connect that to what's going on in chapter 4, you see that God is moving in this moment for Paul. Paul is telling these people, man, I love you so much. I want the best for you. And the best thing for you is to follow the example of Christ. Even when you're suffering. Even when you face challenging and difficult situations. And when you find yourselves in those situations, that is when you turn to Philippians 4.13 and be reminded that I can do all things through him who gives us strength. I love the book of Philippians for a lot of different reasons. One of the reasons why I, I really connect with this passage is this idea that life isn't easy. We were never given that promise 
that life is easy, that, that wor- the, the worlds that we exist in, that we're just going to be smooth skating the whole way. That's not a promise from God. But what is a promise is that even when we find ourselves in challenging and difficult situations, God will see us through. And that we are given the strength to get through those seasons as well. Let's stand and sing together.